Get in touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I am your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with HowStuffWorks and iHeartRadio, and I love all things tech. And we are continuing our story about RCA and its history. It's celebrating 100 years in 2019. So we're looking at how this company came to be. And we left off in the last episode talking about how RCA formed RKO Pictures, largely in an effort to establish its sound-on-film technology called RCA Photophone. That effort began in 1929, just as the world was hurtling toward the Great Depression, which wasn't that great, if you ask me. But in October of that year, of 1929, the stock market crashed and a panic ensued, ultimately wiping out the fortunes of millions of investors, large and small. The effect on numerous industries was devastating. Millions of people were out of work. Businesses like theaters and restaurants were closing. But one industry remained strong, and that was radio. Radios were seen as an important element in the home because they provided a means of escape through entertainment programming. They allowed families to keep up with the news of the world. The radio would even play an important part in economic recovery, when on March 12, 1933, which is still in the middle of the Great Depression, U.S. President Franklin Delano Roosevelt, FDR in other words, addressed the country in a broadcast fireside chat to talk about the bank crisis. Roosevelt urged Americans to be patient, and to trust the government as it worked to stabilize the banks. That helped reverse a trend in which people had been participating in numerous runs on banks. uh, And they were in fear of losing their savings, so they were withdrawing all their money from the banks. And it helped make stabilization a reality and helped set the ground for recovery. Now, in the mid-1930s, FDR started the Rural Electrification Administration, which was tasked with extending electric utilities to rural areas, particularly farms. The national estimate for rural farms with electricity was just at 10% in the mid-1930s. Some areas like Texas were even lower, with only 2.3% of farms having electricity. But as more communities were getting access to electricity, more people began to invest in radios. And so the industry continued to do well even through the Depression. And the Depression wouldn't end until 1939. That put RCA in a particularly strong position. It had the National Broadcast Company, or NBC, and its blue and red networks. That was a network of radio stations to networks of radio stations technically, stretching across the country that would broadcast material that had been created in RCA's New York and New Jersey studios. This was the golden age of radio. Popular formats included music, such as live performances from famous concert halls and opera houses, but there was also a boom in radio drama and radio comedy, as well as news and game shows. All of those formats were debuting around this time. These were programs that would precede the era of television and we're sort of experiencing these anew today in the form of podcasts. We're getting a lot of those sort of things like the various radio programs and radio dramas. You can find lots of examples of that on podcasts today and they kind of have their history back in these old radio programs. Some of the more notable programs that played on NBC included the Jack Benny program, uh, Dick Tracy, the Spike Jones show, Dragnet, 
Burns and Allen, and dozens more. Tons of programs came out around this time. Now, one thing I find really interesting is that NBC sort of created its own rivals. It was an effective monopoly heading into the late 20s. In fact, it really was a monopoly. It owned a huge network of radio stations. Uh, There were still some independent radio stations, but there were no competing networks. There was, however, a talent agent named Arthur Judson, and he was getting really fed up with NBC. He was frustrated. He kept meeting with resistance when he was trying to get his clients onto radio programs that were carried by NBC. And so Judson did what any reasonable person would do. He created his own network of radio stations. And originally, it was called the United Independent Broadcasters. But shortly after Judson founded this effort in 1927, he agreed to a merger with the Columbia Phonograph and Records Company. And this new company became known as the Columbia Phonograph Broadcasting Company. The company, however, didn't do so well. It was up against NBC, which was a giant in radio. And so they weren't really able to mount a strong offense while they were starting to accrue a whole lot of debt. And they came up with a big loss of money. uh, And that led to an acquisition in 1929. A rich dude named William S. Paley, who had come into a lot of money due to his father's successful businesses, bought the struggling concern, and he renamed it the Columbia Broadcasting System, or CBS. So you could argue that RCA created NBC directly and CBS indirectly. And we're not done with all of that yet. But first, let's get back to RCA. In the time around 1930 and 1931, RCA Victor would create the first record albums to be played back at the speed of 33 and a third revolutions per minute. Now, this isn't what we would call a long play or LP record today, even though it was at 33 and a third revolutions. Now, I kind of covered all of this in the history of turntables, so I'm just going to give a relatively brief overview. In the early days of flat disc records, Most records were made out of a shellac compound material because it could hold up to multiple playbacks. They needed something that was going to maintain its shape as you played it over and over again. However, shellac was not ideal. It was an abrasive material. It had bumps on it. And that meant that a needle going through the groove would occasionally hit these bumps and it would cause the needles to move around a bit and create noise in the process. So it wasn't ideal. The standard playback speed at the time was 78 revolutions per minute for a couple of big reasons. One was technical limitations. The motors manufactured uh, at that time were largely in the 3600 RPM range. So that was readily available. They were inexpensive. So that's what these these various companies were going after. They went with these motors that would turn at 3,600 revolutions per minute. And then they would use a gear ratio to uh, change that revolutions per minute for the actual platter. So the motor's turning at 3,600 revolutions per minute, and the gear ratio that was most frequently used, the one that was, again, easy to get and therefore cheap, was a 46 to 1 ratio gear. So if you do that math... You say like, all right, for every 46 times this thing turns, this other thing turns one time, you end up with the 78 revolutions per minute. 
The higher speed had a secondary function. It helped smooth out some of that noise that would otherwise be present when you're playing back one of these 78 RPM records. Uh, It wasn't a perfect solution, but it was better than playing them back slower because if you played them back more slowly, the noise was amplified. You, you, You just heard it more. But when Warner Brothers started its Vitaphone system for films, which I talked about in the last episode, the company realized that it would need a more efficient system than one that played back at 78 RPM. So if you remember, the Vitaphone system was where you would record the audio for a film onto a disc, and then you would synchronize the playback of the disc with the playback of the film, and that's how you got a talking picture like the jazz singer. But using a 78 RPM disc was not a great idea for that, because at that speed, it only takes about five minutes for a playback device like a turntable to play through one side of a 12-inch disc. Slowing down the RPMs, reducing the number of RPMs, would increase the playback time. It would take longer for the needle to travel through the groove. And so Warner Brothers used a gear ratio that had uh, 108 to 1, and that created the 33 and a third revolutions per minute speed. RCA decided to embrace that approach and introduced new 33 and a third RPM turntables in 1931 that would play back discs that were recorded at that speed. These turntables still use the larger groove that the 78 RPM records had. However, this is before the micro groove invention. Now, if you know your history of turntables, you've heard that the company that introduced the long play album, the LP, the vinyl LP, was Columbia Records, and that this didn't happen until the 1940s. And that's true. When Columbia Records would bring this innovation forward, it did so on a new material that was called vinyl, made from PVC plastic, and it introduced the microgroove technology. That brought the width of the groove to the records uh, down to about a millimeter wide. And that meant you could fit way more grooves on each side of a record, and you could extend playtime to about 22 minutes for a 12-inch disc. But if RCA introduced a 33 and a third format in 1931, why does Columbia Records get the credit for a 33 and a third album in the 1940s? Well, it's because RCA's efforts were a total failure. The company had tried to introduce a brand new format and technology right at the beginning of the Great Depression. And while families were willing to make payments on their radio sets, because a lot of families were buying these things on credit, they they would end up paying for their radios. They, there were families that would get rid of other luxuries, but they would keep that radio because it was such an important element of home life. They were not ready to dip in and buy a whole new piece of electronic equipment. They didn't have the money for it. They didn't have the interest in it. They would rather just stick with the thing they already had. So the economics just weren't there for RCA. So the company ultimately abandoned the 33 and a third format. When Columbia Records was ready to debut its technology more than a decade later, executives reached out to RCA to see if the company would want to license the technology and build its own 33 and a third turntables. But David Sarnoff, who you'll remember from the last episode, was the very strong-willed guy who was in charge of RCA, refused. He did not like the idea of conforming to someone else's standards, particularly since RCA had tried to do it earlier. 
Instead, he would push RCA to market its own disk format, which would play back at 45 revolutions per minute. And thus, another format war began, the Speed Wars. RCA would sell 7-inch disks that would play back at 45 RPM, and Columbia focused on 12-inch disks at 33 and a third RPM. This took place in the late 1940s, and by 1950, after seeing several artists leave RCA to join Columbia, the company finally gave up and began to create its own 33 and a third RPM long-playing records. The 45 RPM disc would become the favored format for singles and jukeboxes, so it wasn't a total loss. RCA still made money off of its format. It just did not become the standard. I have a lot more to say about RCA and its innovations, but first let's take a quick break to thank our sponsor. Okay, we gotta jump back to the 1930s now. We went ahead a little bit to talk about the 33 and a third versus 45 RPM speed wars that stretched all the way into the late 1940s. Back to the 1930s. In 1932, under pressure from the United States federal government, the partners that formed RCA all jumped ship. At issue was the monopoly-like status that RCA enjoyed as both an operator of radio stations and as an arm for these various companies to develop and sell technologies. So in other words, the government that had created this monopoly now felt that maybe things had gone a bit too far. Because remember, the United States made this monopoly. They encouraged it. And now they were saying, well, this is getting a bit uncomfortable. So General Electric... Westinghouse and AT&T all sold their interest in RCA to the new company. It became an independent company called the RCA Corporation. David Sarnoff would remain in charge of this new independent company. RCA was a pioneer in another big consumer electronic category, which would be television. RCA had employed Vladimir Zvorkin, the television developer who had fought for the title of inventor of television, a title that most people would give to his rival, Philo Farnsworth. Farnsworth first demonstrated electronic television back in 1927. Zwarikin, however, had worked with a guy named Boris Rosing in Russia, who had been working on a similar experiment more than a decade before Farnsworth's demonstration, but Rosing's work had not really reached a level of sophistication interesting enough for big business at the time, and it was crude by comparison uh, to Farnsworth's invention. Sarnoff would hire Zwarikin to head up a division in RCA to develop electronic television technology with the goal of creating a consumer product in the future. Now, as a whole, RCA would invest around $50 million into this project, which is a princely sum today. But remember, this was back in the late 20s and into the 30s and 40s. That was a truly gargantuan sum of money back then. And it shows how Sarnoff, the man who had proposed the radio music box before becoming the head of RCA, could see how the future of an entertainment might unfold. He, he was convinced that television would be the next big thing after radio. And you certainly could say he was absolutely right. Now, all of that work that this investment would bring about would get shown off on a very large stage, the 1939 World's Fair in New York City. RCA demonstrated the electronic television system there and broadcast the first televised address by a U.S. president, Franklin Delano Roosevelt. That same year, RCA would pay Farnsworth some licensing fees to use some of his patents, 
and RCA began selling television sets. They were pretty darn small. The picture tubes measured 5 by 12 inches, or 12.7 by 25.4 centimeters. So you might wonder, how do these electronic televisions work? The heart of the technology is the CRT, or cathode ray tube. This is not just how the images get generated, it's also what serves as the screen that you look at in these old televisions. I'm talking about the old big TVs, the wide, deep TVs, not flat screen or anything like that. That's a different method to produce the same sort of result. So the CRT is essentially an electron generator. A CRT is kind of like a giant light bulb, a more sophisticated light bulb. Inside the CRT is a filament, a small piece of material that's meant to heat up and then shed electrons. If you run current through the filament, it causes it to heat up. And as the atoms in the filament gain energy, they begin to shed these electrons. The electrons pop off of the atoms. Positively charged elements called anodes attract the electrons because opposite charges attract, right? Electrons have a negative charge. They get attracted to things that have a positive charge. The old CRT sets had essentially a focusing anode, which would pull the stream of electrons into a very tight beam, and an accelerating anode, which would, you know, accelerate the stream of electrons. The destination for this stream of electrons is the backside of the television screen itself. So you're looking at a screen on a TV. On the reverse side of that screen, that's the backside uh, for you. That is where the electrons are making impact. Uh, it's like looking at the fat end of a light bulb, if you think about it. That's what the television screen is. So on the backside of this TV screen is a coating of phosphor, which is a material that will give off light when it's uh, excited by energy, in this case, when it's struck by electrons. And coating the rest of the inside of the tube is a conductive material that's meant to soak up electrons as they build up on the screen side of the tube. Wrapped around the base of the CRT are two sets of steering coils. One set runs parallel to the base of the CRT, and one set wraps across the base of the CRT. These are copper windings, the kind you would find in an electromagnet. In fact, they are essentially electromagnets. And when you run electricity through the coils, you create magnetic fields. These sets of windings are at perpendicular angles to each other, right? You've got the parallel kind and the perpendicular kind. And one set is used to steer the beam of electrons vertically, and the other one steers the beam of electrons horizontally. And if you change the voltage in the coils, that directs the electron beam to specific points on the screen. Now, when you turn on this electron beam, it starts to paint the backside of the screen. That is, it's shooting electrons at the phosphors on the backside of the screen, causing those phosphors to glow. The beam scans across the screen one line at a time from the top to the bottom. So the beam first moves left to right across the top of the screen. When it reaches the right side, the beam turns off the electron flow and then rapidly redirects back to the left and down one line. So it goes down a notch and then it does it again. When it gets all the way down to the bottom right side of the screen, the beam turns off and it returns back to the upper left position and starts over. It would take a while before broadcast standards would really define how all televisions would work in the United States, but eventually 
it evolved into this approach, where a CRT television would paint a screen 60 times per second. However, it would only paint half the lines per frame. So in the first frame, it might paint all the odd lines. So one, three, five, seven, and so on. And the second frame would have the electron beam paint all the even lines. So while the electron beam would be moving across the screen 60 times per second, the entire frame of odd and even lines, the total screen, would be painted 30 times per second. Eventually, TVs had a standard of 525 lines. So every second, the electron beam would paint a total of 15,750 lines. So RCA shows off this technology in 1939. The company also broadcast the first televised baseball game on May 17, 1939. It was between Columbia University and Princeton. I don't know who won. I didn't look it up. But it was all done on a single camera, which I imagine created a somewhat limited effect for watching it on TV, especially considering that uh, at the time you needed a whole lot of light to get a good picture on these uh, on these televisions because uh, the cameras were limited. Early television broadcasts were tricky in general. The camera technology, like I said, required a whole lot of light to create a, a strong enough signal to send out to TVs. And a lot of light meant that television personalities, you know, actors, newscasters, that sort of thing, uh, they were all pretty much exclusively white people at that time. They would appear washed out on screen because they had so much light on them. To deal with that, the actors would often have to wear dark makeup, frequently green makeup. It would show up better. And remember, all TVs at this point are black and white sets. So no one knew that the people were all green because they're seeing a black and white image. Uh, the actors, newscasters, etc., would often also wear black lipstick so that their lips would actually be visible on screen. Uh, early TV sales were a little slow. The nation was still climbing out of the Great Depression, and it was an expensive new technology. And another event meant that the entire industry would be put on pause for several years, and that little event would be World War II. Now, if you listened to my last episode, if you haven't, you should, you know that the First World War was what led to the formation of RCA in the first place. World War II would slow down the consumer electronics business, but RCA wasn't put into mothballs and storage. They weren't struggling. Instead, the company opened up the RCA Research Laboratories in Princeton, New Jersey. And for years, the company had relied upon its close association with General Electric for R&D, but now it could pursue its own research with its own facility, with I think 125 scientists when they first opened up. And much of that early research would be dedicated to the war effort on the part of the United States. RCA would develop a smaller version of its iconoscope for the military. The iconoscope was uh, the television camera tube that Zorakin had developed. So I described how the cathode ray tube worked in an effort to display images. The iconoscope was how these images were initially captured to be transmitted to a television. And it's an element that has a particularly peculiar shape. Uh, it would be inside the television camera. Uh, I've seen the shape referred to as a barrel-shaped bulb and an angled neck. And 
Uh, there were a couple of different versions of the Econoscope that did not take that particular shape, but most of them did. I do not think I can adequately describe what this looks like. I don't, I don't think it's within my powers of description. So I suggest if you are interested in seeing what these things look like, because they're kind of funky looking, you go on to an image search and look for Iconoscope, I-C-O-N-O-S-C-O-P-E, because they do look pretty unusual. So they consisted of a few parts. Uh, one part was called the target. This was the area of the iconoscope that would receive the focused light coming from the camera's lens. All right, so you've got a scene in front of you. Let's say that it's a news scene. There's a, a desk, a news anchor. You have very bright lights shining on that scene. And that light is, some of that light anyway, is traveling through the camera's lens and it gets focused onto this target. The target itself has an array of photosensitive dots on it or pixels, if you like. And they would end up generating uh, a different uh, voltage based upon how much light was hitting them. An electron beam would sweep across the target. The electron beam is generated by an electron gun that's in that angled neck I had explained about uh, just a minute ago. So you get this proportional current flow from the dots based upon how much light is hitting them, and the electron beam sweeps across this, and then it would send this signal out through to an amplifier for transmission to television receivers that would then reverse this process. RCA developed a lightweight version of this for the United States military. By the time the war would end, the company and the rest of the industry would move toward alternative camera designs that didn't rely so heavily on brightly lit environments, which, as it turns out, are a difficult thing to insist upon during wartime operations. So a lot of the television-based technologies that RCA developed for the military were of limited use. I'll explain more in just a second. But first, let's take another quick break to thank our sponsor. One of the things the modified iconoscope would be used for was in a very early attempt to create unmanned drones. In 1941, the United States military converted some manned aircraft so that they could be controlled remotely. The camera would mount on top of the drone and beam back a signal to the operator, which meant there didn't need to be visual contact between the remote pilot and the actual aircraft. In 1942, the military was able to pilot such a drone on a test flight to land on a target ship, and it was controlled from a control aircraft at a distance of 30 miles, or 50 kilometers, from that target ship. Pretty incredible. Now, one of the projects that used this technology was called Operation Aphrodite, in which old B-17 and B-24 bombers were loaded up with explosives and launched under human control. You would have a tailing aircraft following behind. And at a certain distance from the intended target, the human pilot of that B-17 or B-24 would bail and parachute out of the bomber. The trailing aircraft would have two pilots aboard it. One of them would be controlling the actual trailing aircraft, and the other one would be manning the remote controls for the bomber. Actually, in several cases, it would require two pilots to control the, the uh, remote-controlled aircraft. Joe Kennedy, brother to John Kennedy, a former U.S. president, 
uh, actually died while serving as a volunteer pilot for this operation. RCA also developed technologies that would be used in glider bombs and also a, a program called the TDR drone. But the technical limitations of camera and television technologies meant these were of limited use. The TDR drone was probably the most successful of all the different experiments. But at that stage, uh, the United States had entered a part of the war where it was more about brute force and less about precision strikes. And so the TDR drone only had limited use during the war. But the military contracts really helped justify Sarnoff's massive investment in developing television technology, and it meant that RCA had the money to build out its manufacturing facilities. So on top of those projects, RCA engineers at the R&D facility also worked on radar antenna, uh, phosphors for radar screens, they worked on acoustic fuses for various types of munitions, and they also helped develop things like infrared cameras and navigation equipment. It became one of the indispensable companies that the United States would rely upon to develop wartime technologies that weren't, you know, weapons in of themselves. Meanwhile, as the war raged in Europe, RCA would make another big move back at home. In 1943, the company was forced to sell off its NBC Blue Network and sold it to a guy named Edward J. Noble. Now, if you remember from our last episode, NBC was originally two different networks. You had a blue network and you had a red network. The heart of the blue network was a radio station that had originally been established by Westinghouse. And the heart of the red network was a radio station originally created by AT&T. The blue network was mostly known for non-sponsored content like news reports and culture broadcasts. And the red network was the one known for commercially sponsored entertainment and was the more popular and more profitable of the two networks. Well, a few years earlier, in 1934, the Mutual Broadcasting System filed a complaint to the FCC and said that NBC and CBS had a duopoly over the national radio market, that those two companies had pretty much completely dominated the industry. And this case made its way through the court system because the FCC agreed and ordered NBC to divest itself of either the NBC Blue Network or the NBC Red Network. RCA appealed to the Supreme Court but lost, which led to the sale of the less popular Blue Network to Edward J. Noble, who had made his fortune in lifesavers. The candy, not the emergency flotation device. Anyway, Noble paid $8 million for NBC Blue, a princely sum, and on June 15, 1945, NBC Blue would officially be renamed the American Broadcasting Company, or ABC. And so, RCA had a hand in creating all three of the original major broadcasters in the United States, radio and television broadcast companies. The company directly created NBC, it inadvertently created CBS, and then created the network that would become ABC. At the end of World War II, RCA was in a strong position to build out the consumer television market. The company had used its military contract money to build out manufacturing facilities, and it could now rededicate those facilities to making consumer goods instead of military equipment. RCA started selling black-and-white television sets in 1946. So remember, they had demonstrated it in 1939, but World War II pretty much put a complete stop to that effort. 
So in 46, they start selling these sets. And to create content, RCA would rely upon NBC, which would not just make radio content, but now television content as well. Many of the popular radio series would be converted into TV series. And this created a new challenge, because now personalities couldn't just sound great, they needed to look great, too. This was kind of the opposite of how things changed when sound came to motion pictures, because before sound, it was important that you look really good for the camera. After sound, you also had to sound good for the microphones. Now, this leads us up to 1948 and what I call the Great Talent Raid. CBS, which was also getting into television production, needed some good-looking stars. And NBC had a lot of them. So, William S. Paley, the guy who had purchased CBS, who had formed it out of the company that Judson had tried to create years earlier, ordered a talent raid on NBC. This involved CBS executives offering lucrative contracts to many of NBC's big stars. And previous to this, there had been sort of an understanding, a gentleman's agreement, if you will, that the two networks would not dare raid each other for talent. And now Paley says, you know what? Nah. So they ended up luring people like George Burns and Gracie Allen and Jack Benny to jump ship from NBC to CBS. So RCA and NBC built the network and a lot of the technologies that led to the rise of television, and CBS was able to pull a fast one and make the transition from radio to television smoothly by hiring away some of NBC's talent. Sarnoff had been a little slow to adapt to the world that Paley had been forging, Sarnoff was really good at leading his company to sell radio sets and televisions, and Paley had been more effective at designing programming, so as to say the the stuff that would actually air on those radio sets and televisions. Paley had embraced advertising as a source of revenue. He was also wholeheartedly into creating sponsored content, in which a company would pay for the production costs of a show in return for receiving heavy promotion, sometimes in ad breaks, sometimes even within a show itself. Sarnoff wasn't really crazy about that type of business. He thought of it as being distasteful, and reportedly, he wouldn't meet with ad executives at all. He delegated all of that to his direct reports. Paley, on the other hand, would seek out those ad executives. And so while NBC had a huge head start on CBS, Paley was able to catch up pretty quickly, even before the TV era had begun. Sarnoff did rise to meet Paley's challenge and had the benefit of RCA backing NBC up, whereas Paley was running CBS without a larger corporation behind it. In 1950, just four years after RCA had introduced a consumer television black-and-white set, the company showed off a new innovation. It was one that would change television dramatically. This would be color television. And it would take some time for the format to become the standard in American households, but it was another big innovation from RCA that had a major impact on technology and culture. In our next episode, I will explain how color television works I'll explain how RCA's version of color television became the standard for broadcast in America. And we'll also talk about some of the other businesses that RCA got involved in, including things like semiconductors, electron microscopes, VCRs, and how the 50s through the 70s would be a boon time for the company, 
but it would lead to some troubled times a little later on and what would happen in the 80s. So we'll be following all of that in our next episode. I hope you enjoyed this one. If you have any suggestions for future topics I should cover on Tech Stuff, send me a message. You can email me. The address is techstuff at howstuffworks.com. Or you can visit our website. That's techstuffpodcast.com. You'll find other ways to contact me and the archive of all of our episodes on there. Don't forget to visit our merchandise store over at tpublic.com slash techstuff. Every purchase you make goes to help the show, and we greatly appreciate it. And I'll talk to you again really soon. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 